0: Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports.
1: Welcome to the show, Sandy and Sean. The sports scene, obviously a, a, a big one and one that's hopping right now for Denver with the Nuggets and with the Avalanche. But when you work in this industry, Sandy, where you and I have both worked for a long time, you a lot longer than I have, but you have a responsibility to also serve a community, and that comes in a lot of different shapes and forms. And so today is the anniversary of uh, the Columbine Massacre in, in 1999. So we're uh, joined today, and, and thankful to be joined today, by Dr. Frank DeAngelis, the principal of Columbine at the time and um frank thank you for joining us and we really appreciate that the time today you had at at one point said that you had hoped that the 13 students that were lost had not died in vain and then said that it felt that perhaps you had been naive
0: oh my gosh most definitely and just to clarify i wish i had my doctorate as a matter of fact uh right before the columbine incident happened on April 20th. I was getting ready to go to DU to start my doctor program, but plans kind of changed after that. But uh, anyway, I, I was naive and I'm thinking, you know, hopefully those kids didn't die in vain. And unfortunately it continues to happen. And something that really resonated with me a few weeks ago, uh, Denver East had me come out and talk to their staff because of everything that went on over there. And, and I'm talking to staff and People have tears in their eyes, and it brought me back to that time, you know, where where I had to address the staff for the first time. And so these continue to happen, and it's just we got to say enough's enough, and we got to do something about it.
2: Frank, uh, your visit to Denver East uh, had to have triggered something. And I'm wondering how traumatizing an experience. That was, but perhaps, strange as it may sound, uh, some healing may have been involved because, again, you're called upon. You've been doing this kind of work for many years, called upon to help schools who have gone through something resembling what you experienced
0: at Columbine. Right, and it really was. It was traumatizing. but took me back, but... I can remember my days at Denver East uh, because uh, before I became principal, I was assistant football and head baseball coach. And uh, the two years, the, well, one of the years we won the state championship, we beat Denver East, and Tom Severson, who was a legend in high school coaching, uh, was there, and then I saw some of the others. But what really hit me hard is towards the end, uh, people are coming up and you know hugging me, and one person comes up. And she said, Mr. D, and she was one of my students at Columbine. And she started crying and gave me a big hug and said, Mr. D, I never thought that would happen. And she said, I'm so glad that you helped us get through it. Now we need your help again. And that really, you know, touched my heart.
1: Obviously this is a, a difficult circumstance to, to discuss, especially because we've we've now talked about this, not only happening all over the country, but multiple times in the state of Colorado and, right. uh, you have to to help with something of, of, of the, the things you've just discussed there with Denver East work with the groups to put together a, a bit of a support structure the principal recovery network that that's been designed at least somewhat informally to assist in this kind of situation for, for principals and and obviously uh, as that trickles down to other educators how to deal with these kind of circumstances um, could you explain a little bit about you know how, how you've, you've used that to try to continue to build a, a some sort of um, a network for people to be able to uh, compartmentalize and then use the the what they've learned in order to help bring some healing to their injured schools
0: right and where, where i really it all started in this i'm going to take you back to 1999 it was about three days after the columbine shootings i got a phone call from a gentleman named uh bill bonds and he's He called me, and he was the principal at Heath High School, where there was a school shooting there, at Paducah, Kentucky, in 1997. He said, "Frank, you don't even know what you need yet, but here's my number." And I could remember making that phone call. And he, you know, we our our seniors graduated one month after the tragedy. Uh, They graduated on May 20th. What do you do for the first graduation? And he really helped me. And I remember thinking back, I hope we never have to make that phone call. From the time he called me, I probably had to make 40 phone calls to from Parkland to Sandy Hook and all these other places. Well, anyway, um, Greg Wappels, who was the head of the National Association of Secondary School Principals, called me and he said, Frank, you usually make these phone calls, but how would you like to head something up called the Principals Recovery Network? And so we started this in 2018, and there are 22 of us from communities in which school shootings have occurred And we put together this guide, and uh, all the principals met at Columbine High School last August, and then we released this guide, and it is beneficial. You know, one of the things, and you can attest to this, and Sandy and I go way, way back, (laughs) and some of the things, we didn't even know what we needed. You know, what do you do for the first graduation? What do you do the one-year remembrance? I mean, it was just trial and error, and so at least we put things down. How do you deal with the media? You know, and there were things that, I mean— I tell people this, and with you being in sports, all the things that happened, uh, I found out many years later that John Elway was getting ready to retire, and he waited to ret- announce the retirement, and, and, you know, the avalanche postponed games, or they yes. actually went on the road. And, and I can remember going down to uh, Jim Leland's office, and he presented me with things. And, I mean, this community, it was Columbine, but it was Colorado that was affected by this
1: yeah w- when you you look at how these things uh, now continue to perpetuate and, and the, one is always seemingly on the heels of another and not only uh with schools but in 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 these sort of mass uh, casualty events these mass murders that keep happening with regularity the uh, pressure when you're talking about protecting not only just human lives but the lives of, of children, you know 12 of 13 victims were children's children in 1999 the, the, the pressure to do something must continue to feel intense, and, and I guess I, I ask you, how do you find a way to continue on after all these years, still carrying that well, weight, but the weight that not only compounds with every single one of these that you have to face?
0: Well, and I'll tell you, Sean, today what I did is uh, I do a live stream every year of remembering the 13. And Almost today, three
2: hours ago, right?
0: Yeah, three hours ago, exactly. And I actually had parents... Uh, who lost their kids and they came up today and said, Frank, do you realize that, you know, Matt would have been 41 years old and just sharing stories. And one of the things that I have done every year is I call the parents on this day and early on, the calls were sad, but now what's happening, they're talking about their kids and what they would have accomplished, but it does take its toll. And, you know, and one of the things if if I could give any piece of advice and I know when I do, Reach out to these other communities. The first thing um, that I say: What are you doing to take care of yourself? Because I was fortunate after it happened at Columbine. I had a friend. My mom worked for him. He was a doctor, a chiropractor. He is a Vietnam veteran. Veteran, and he said I never got the help I needed. And you need to reach out. So I got into counseling, and then something. And this is not for everyone, but my faith is important to me. And so between those types of things, I make sure that you know before. All this happens, I talk to people. And I mean, counseling, and it's important. And I think so many times there's this negative stigmatism that if you seek counseling, it's a sign of weakness. And I would not be able to do what I'm doing 24 years later if I didn't have that support system in place.
2: And we're all thankful uh, for that. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think Billie Jean King said it uh, a while back that uh, everyone should go through counseling at yeah. least once in their lives. Uh, yeah. it, it is it is helpful. It is a sign of strength and uh, not one of weakness. So we're speaking with Frank DeAngelis, of course, uh, uh, the longtime principal at Columbine High School from 1996 through 2014, joined the faculty in 1979. And you were uh, talking about the families you you spent the this day calling. Uh, yeah. I believe in the library, right? The uh, Hope uh, Columbine Memorial Library. Right. And you call all 13. Uh, families right. of the beloved 13 and no classes uh, today at Columbine. You call yeah. all, all 13 of them, and you mentioned earlier that they'd be in their early 40s, and I'm thinking of you yeah. in 1999 yeah. in your mid-40s, 44, 40 if I'm not for your, mistaken, 43.
0: Uh, exactly, uh, yeah. 40, I would have been 44. in the. So they'd be your age uh, yeah. when
2: you were uh, 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 43 back then. They'd be close to that today.
0: I know, and one of the toughest things I had to do is uh, it was starting on Thursday, and I went to visit all the families. Uh, and what do you say? I mean, I could never say I know what you're feeling because I didn't lose a child like they did. And then um, some people were not happy with me. School district-wide people were not happy because I did that because they said potential law- And I said the last thing on my mind is lawsuits. And I can remember going back in about three weeks, and I brought flowers to them, on the, to the mothers, because it was Mother's Day. And it was the right thing to do because I have good relationships with these families now, 24 years later, and they provide support for me. Today, they're checking with me to see how I'm doing, and they're the ones who lost their kids, you know, in our school 24 years ago.
1: This is obviously such a, a difficult thing to talk about, and in, a, and in a nation where everything seems to be politicized, even the very health of our, our, our children, I mean, obviously you have to have some thought process of watching this over the last 24 years. And what do you think needs to be done? At least a first step.
0: Well, you know, when people, and this is the thing I get asked, they said, what is the one thing it's going to, and I'm not sure if it's one thing. What I look at is when I talk to people, I said, it's almost like having a jigsaw puzzle Yeah. in the, at yeah. the first place you have to go to is some of the gun legislation needs to change. And But at the same time, you know, when I look at what happened at Columbine, uh, some guns were purchased by a young lady who purchased, was 18 years old, and she purchased it at the Tanner Gun Show. It was an independent gun dealer. She purchased the guns, but she said if they would have did more of a check thing, she probably would have ran out of there.
2: If they had asked any questions.
0: Yeah, exactly. Any questions. Yes, exactly. And she said that after the shooting happened. But at the same time... They also purchased some weapons from where they'd work at a pizza joint down the road. But then you look at that, so they have made changes to gun laws, and, I, and there still has to be, and I guess, not to be political, but I wish to God both sides would cross the island and say, enough, these are all of our kids, and what do we have to do to make this better? Because, lose, you know, I'm fortunate my parents are still alive. They're 92 and 88, but if they had to bury me, I'm still their kid. And that's one of the worst things. But the other thing that I worry about is a lot of these schools are cutting out counselors and social workers. Exactly, the kids, we they, we can't do that. And then the role that social media plays. It I'll tell oh. you. Well, you you were the,
2: saying to Terry Fry in a recent uh, interview on TerryFry.com oh. that it, 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 social media back in 1999 consisted of MySpace.
0: That was right? it. That was it. Exactly. And that was it. And you look at it right now, what's happening. And I'll tell you something else, Andy and Sean. What I saw towards the end of my career, and I've been retired now nine years, but I saw more grandparents and even great-grandparents that were trying to raise their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they would be in my office. and, And I'm a grandparent, and I'm a loving grandparent, but how we raised our kids 20 years ago, 25 years ago, was a lot different. And so when you add all these things, and and I think one of the things that I tell kids and when I used to meet with them, a lot of these kids are broadcasting, especially now with social media, what they're going to do. If they see something, they need to alert us as adults, and we need to do something about it.
2: Frank, uh, we spoke, uh, I think, four years ago on this day, or very close to this day, certainly four years ago this week, uh, on the air at uh, another uh, radio station. Uh, and about your book with Terry Fry that had uh, come out in 2019. They call me Mr. D, the story of Combine's heart.
0: Uh, resilience resilience and, recovery. and recovery.
2: Correct. Can't read right my now. own writing. Uh, that came out four <laughs> years ago in 2019. And I'm wondering since that book came out, and it, it, it's a, a book that that's timeless uh, and, and certainly provides a, an outline of what your views were at the time. If anything, has your position on gun control changed, uh, even hardened in the last four years that get given everything we've been through from a right. to the covenant school right. in Nashville, which is a private school, by the way. And right. some people suggested, well, it, this would happen only at public schools. Couldn't happen at a private school. It happened at a private school and it was devastating. Sandy,
0: it, it, great that you asked that question because uh when i did my little spiel with terry this past weekend he said well you've changed a little bit and i think just witnessing everything that i've witnessed these past 24 years where i am struggling right now is where a little uh, five-year-old or six-year-old can get a gun and shoot his teacher what are these parents doing or I was glad to see, and I think it's Oxford, Michigan, where they're actually holding the parents responsible for purchasing a gun for their 15-year-old kid. And and I got into it with a politician who said, "Frank, you don't understand. We need a 30-round magazine to kill animals." And I said, "What? Is, I mean, some of that logic makes no. It makes no <laughs> exactly. I'm saying you, and even in for the people that say self-defense." well, if you're going to defend yourself, why do you need a 30-round magazine? And I, I mean, it's just bizarre, and I think we have to look at some of these laws and say, you've got to be kidding me, because these kids, what bothers me is when all of a sudden these shootings will happen, like at Denver East, and we saw it after Parkland. Everyone is very intense about it. Well, two or three months from now, we forget talking about it, and we've got we to gotta make changes. It can't continue.
1: Uh, because it's it's not taking two or three months until the next one. Uh, this, yeah. it, you've hired the voice of Frank DeAngelis, the uh, long-term principal of Columbine at the time of the Columbine shooting back in 1999. Uh, for more, if, you, if you're an educator, uh, you can go to NASSP.org, the National right. Association of Secondary School Principals, to find uh, the Principal Recovery Network that uh, Mr. DeAngelis is part of the member of putting that together. It is a, a group of people that have put together a a guide of which nobody wanted to do, but it is a tremendous service to the community. And thank you so much for, for the time today and for the insights.
0: And love your show. And thank you, Sandy. Always good to talk to you and we got to get together. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Thanks. Sandy. Thanks, Thanks. Frank. Keep up the great Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you know, we, uh, this comes up second amendment rights. That's out of the 1770s and the notion that we would help solve this problem by arming teachers in schools you're asking teachers potentially to adopt a mindset where they'd be willing to kill
1: a student which is something that uh, you're a, not in an interview that. that uh mr dangelis actually had said a couple years prior said that even if he had had the training even if he had had the knowledge Uh, His first reaction would not be, of course, to try to kill a student. It would be to try to talk a student down uh, or try, because that's that's what you want out of your educators, somebody who's concerned about the individual.
2: The 25 girls, I believe, that he was protecting at the time, they they didn't want to. Well, it may have been a risk either. The the, victims,
1: uh, besides, uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the teacher David Sanders, would have been all between 38. And 42 years of age.
2: And and again, I want to read just the first names. And you mentioned Dave Sanders, but the, the, the other 12 uh, worth remembering today. Cassie, Stephen, Corey, Kelly, Matthew, Daniel, Dan, Rachel, Isaiah, John, Lauren, and Kyle. And they're in our thoughts every year on April 20th.
1: There are uh, happier, and on other days and too. other days as well. There are happier things to discuss, and and we will get to them after we take a mo- couple moments here to uh, reflect and think about it. Right here on Mile High Sports.
0: This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Been here. What it is ain't exactly clear.
1: The Denver Nuggets ended up. Winning their game, game two, as we expected, by the way. We are back to uh, good news here in Denver because uh, the Nuggets, of course, win their game. The Avs have an opportunity to tie their series tonight. The Nuggets win 122 to 13, 113 last night. Did that at the uh, the watch party, by the way, that we uh, put together with Denver Stiffs over at Sports Bar, Sports Book, pardon me, Bar and Grill over on Broadway and 470. Enjoyed that. So people came out. We'll do it again on Friday, as a matter of fact more on that a little bit later, but uh, as as good a game as Nikola Jokic had, 10 for, nine, uh, 10 for 19, 27 points, 9 boards, 9 assists, good game. One could argue that in the latter stages of the game, he might have been the Nuggets' third best player, and that's one of the best reasons to be excited about their chances as a championship contender. I, I think if there was any doubt about
2: this series going the distance, (laughs) all right? If there's any doubt about this series going to perhaps just six games, uh, it was erased last night. The Nuggets faced uh, maybe moment of truth is a little bit exaggerated, but when you're up 53-32, with 4.45 left in the first half. And Minnesota, over the next 15 minutes, 13 seconds, goes on a 51-27 to 27 run and takes the lead at 83-80 late in the third quarter, leads by two going to the fourth quarter at 89-87. That's a test. And to pass that test, you can't just lean on Jokic, who, as he customarily is, Stays on a bench at the start of the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. He's not out there. Michael Porter Jr., who had a long stint on the bench, is in the game. And he scores the first eight points of the fourth quarter. But even after that, the Nuggets fall behind 99-98 on an Edwards bucket. And then it becomes a duel of sorts, a duel to a draw, in effect, between Jamal Murray and Anthony Edwards, and Edwards was all Minnesota had. Murray was great, but he had Porter, who scored almost all of his points in the fourth quarter. 13 fourth quarter points. Right? And a little bit of Jokic, once Jokic was subbed back into the game. And the Nuggets, as it turned out, played a fourth quarter that they won by 35-24 to after that 51-27 run that Minnesota had been on uh, almost up to the end of the third quarter. So I think the Nuggets faced down a bit of adversity last night, and for their trouble, I think now go to Minnesota with a chance at worst, I, I, I think, to split outside chance to sweep. I tend to think the Minnesota crowd may be enough to give Minnesota a win, maybe as early as Friday in in game three, all the more reason that uh, the Nuggets needed to come back. And, you know, for for reasons that I find hard to explain sometimes, uh, the Nugget team that played the first half was not at all the Nugget team we saw in the third quarter, and in some respects, we didn't see that team in the fourth quarter either. We saw the heroic supporter, Murray, and Jokic in the fourth quarter, but the Nuggets had 19 fast break points at halftime. As often happens under this coaching regime, they had zero fast break points in the second half. Now, the coach in question will say, well, we didn't guard in the third
1: quarter. Uh, t- and there's something it's
2: to that. Hard to run when you don't guard. Nah, okay. Minnesota
1: shot shot 81. But I'm third. sorry, that's ridiculous.
2: You you're okay. It's hard to fast break, obviously, when you're taking the ball out of the basket. But on offense, possession after possession after possession. I know he called timeout a couple. You have one guy holding the ball and four guys standing. And you have the ridiculous specter. I'm sorry. Ridiculous specter of Jeff Green playing 13 minutes plus consecutively. Again.
1: This happened again, by the way. Killing the Nuggets.
2: Uh, Through fatigue. um, You know, he dunked a couple of times, which apparently thrills Malone. But he was awful. And he's out there for more than 13 consecutive minutes. And he plays in the last 18 and a half minutes of the game. Well over 70% of the minutes. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Not Gordon, not Porter, not Christian Braun, who played all of seven seven minutes and could have been called upon since he was scorching everybody else. Go out there and at least try to get Anthony Edwards out of his rhythm so that he isn't shooting with plenty of clearance from the outside and driving to the basket unimpeded. And this notion that because they're related, I guess, uh, it, 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 in some way, that Contagious Caldwell Pope can guard Anthony Edwards when Edwards has it going. I thought a defensive genius like Malone was supposed to avoid defensive mismatches. He certainly stubbornly, as he often does, stuck with a matchup that was almost singularly responsible for the Nuggets having to fight from behind in the fourth quarter to win this basketball game, a game they should have won by at least thirty points.
1: This is one of the concerns. And I you know, I won't necessarily lay it all on the on the foot of Michael Malone, but there's certainly a part of it. I mean, let's face it. We we were you and I were there. Uh, you know, that Nate Lundy from My Life Sports was there. And we were all kind of saying the same thing. They're like, oh, we've seen this from Michael Malone before. And that there is sort of a lack of creativity at times or a lack of willingness to change. Just stubbornness. That's, Pure, that's probably the, maybe the best way to put it. Stubbornness. So you see some of these, that, that, That's it's not even the 13 minutes for Jeff Green. It's 13 consecutive minutes for Jeff Green. Why? Under what circumstances is it a good plan to get a guy that's 36 years old 13 consecutive minutes on the floor? It's insane. That doesn't make any sense to me at all.
2: You don't don't play your stars 13 consecutive minutes. Right. Except in very rare circumstances. The idea that, uh, I mean, really, you know, uh, Christian Brown had... The guy should be your eighth man at best in the rotation. Mm -hmm. If you have eight men, he's the the last one.
1: Three minutes fewer than Michael Porter Jr. Right.
2: Can you imagine that? And uh, Gordon played 33 minutes right. to 26. And again, Green in the last 1834 played more than Gordon did. He played more than Porter
1: did. It's crazy. And you're getting Christian Brown with seven minutes. I mean, essentially, I'm not discounting the seven minutes, but essentially Michael Malone went with a seven-man rotation. And it, it was hardly even a rotation because it was all the <laughs> same groups. And, and uh, you have... No real backup for Jokic when he's off the floor. That's another major concern. Uh, there's not even effort to try to put anybody there. But the, 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 the substitution patterns are odd, and it falls into the same pattern we've seen from Michael Malone before. I trust veterans. I don't trust younger guys. And the truth of the matter is, even given his notable across-the-board accomplishments and improvements this year, Michael Porter Jr. is apparently still in Michael Malone's version of one of the younger guys, of which he'd rather have Jeff Green or Bruce Brown out there than Porter Jr. They yep. don't win this game unless Porter Jr., as, as good as Joe... You, you brought up the good point. Everyone everyone today is talking about Jamal Murray and 40. Great. Yep. He played, and you had the right term, he played Edwards to a standstill. Not that you didn't need it, not that they went I without Jamal Murray. After it
2: after Edwards hit the shot that put him in front, that then it becomes kind of a back and forth. But if Michael
1: Porter and, Jr. And doesn't score 13 in the fourth, this team does, does.
2: They don't win. They don't even win. I, I don't think they win. And he scored. And listen, I, people have listened. I've been praising Moore uh, in the last two weeks, uh, three weeks, a month, however long we've been on the air. Right. I've praised Michael Porter Jr. more during that period of time. Than I've entire career. spent praising him throughout his entire career, yeah. especially here in Denver. And he deserved all of it last night because he was the offense and he made it happen one on one, starting with a three point shot, getting fouled, getting a couple more foul shots, and I think a, a two pointer.
1: Mm-hmm. He didn't just camp eight out at three. Straight
2: points. This was not you know, any kind of fluke they they had to have him at that point in the ball game, they had to have him score and score big time. And listen, I I will couple that by saying that although they had some numbers last night, thank goodness Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns play for the Minnesota Timberwolves because – Aaron Gordon, who had some foul trouble last night, right, and so I can understand his minutes were were down, thirty three minutes, he had foul trouble. Okay, fine. His numbers: twelve points, ten rebounds, three assists, minus three in thirty three minutes. Okay, on you six have, of eleven shooting. Okay, you have that, and then you have, and I'm sure you give me the shooting percentage here too. Towns: ten points, twelve rebounds two assists, five turnovers, minus nine in 34 minutes. So they, they basically went head-to-head. Head. Three basically, for 12.
1: Three for 12. One
2: guy shot six for 11. The other guy
1: shot three for three 12. For 12.
2: And in spite of his insistence that the threes would fall and gain two,
1: one they more did. didn't. I mean, they doubled for him.
2: One did. It <laughs> went from one, one. one out of seven one. to two out of five. Oh, did he make two?
1: He did. He made two out of five. He made two. Okay, yeah, but, my mistake. But again,
2: but, but I mean... It, Gordon was the more effective player, even in foul trouble, than Carl Anthony Towns. But I mean, you can do the math. And that means he was one I for mean, seven. I from- mean, Gobert can have his best game, and last night was pretty close, at least from a statistical point of view, on offense to his best game. 19 points, eight rebounds, four assists, a block, uh, two turnovers, plus four in 39 minutes. He was a plus player. But you put that up against Jokic on... A pretty ordinary night, 27 9 and 9, with three turnovers plus six and 37 minutes. Actually, Jokic played two fewer minutes, and you get the feeling that the wrist is bothering Jokic. And I'm not blaming that ailment on his being overplayed or being misused uh, by Malone. It's one of those nagging little things. I think it's affected his foul shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this series, we ta- uh, saw him miss two in a row the other night. Uh, we saw him miss last night from the line. Yeah, That's uncharacteristic. Yeah, they, this guy dates. under playoff pressure is an 85 to 90% yeah. foul shooter. Six and for nine last night. He's six for nine last night, misses three, and he missed uh, two on one trip to the line uh, in game one. But uh, you, you have an advantage in playing a team that will beat itself sooner or later if you give them half the chance. And even on a night where Anthony Edwards was 1A or 1B, to Murray's 1A or 1B, uh, even on a night where he is great and they get a little bit of a contribution from their bench, they still are saddled with those two big guys who, especially in crunch time, are non-factors, and that's a major reason that the Nuggets won the game last night and are likely to win at least one of the games
1: in Minneapolis. It, it it does feel as if when you're talking about Towns in particular has just looked awful. The counting stats look like he's having an okay run. No, Not good, just okay, but he's been abysmal. He's been a liability. There is no concern uh, on the Nuggets' inability, or, you know, ability to stop him. That they're completely able to stop him. He's stopping himself. He doesn't look good. Uh, you're talking about the turnovers. I mean, an early turnover he had. He just Five kind of turnovers. He just kind of lobbed one, underhanded, back towards the three point line that Jamal Murray just easily, handily grabbed out of thin air and was able to dunk. And uh, just lazy play. And this Timberwolves team, we, you know, I mentioned it yesterday. I thought if they got beaten really badly, and I don't know if this counts, although they should probably feel, given that they took the Nuggets best shot early, came all the way back and took the lead, they should probably feel like it's a pretty bad loss. And, I think they're really close to folding if they don't fold entirely. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I can see I, I can see them I take one the game. I think the home
2: crowd may inspire. This them is once, not
1: going further than
2: five. But I I, I don't see it going more f- further than five. And if it does, it's more on the Nuggets than it, it's uh, on the Timberwolves uh, pressing the Nuggets. And I know Michael Malone saying after the game that oh well we saw the Minnesota team, we knew they'd fight back, and they came at us in the third quarter and again. Okay. Well, you allowed it to a great extent uh again uh, i know he called a couple of timeouts but they come out of those timeouts and their play is just as pedestrian and uh, slow-footed and uh, lackadaisical uh, as ever and part of that had to do with, with not even halfway through the quarter he puts jeff green in and then doesn't take him out till midway in the fourth quarter he it's played odd. him more than a quarter's worth of minutes consecutively and this has it's happened crazy. in the last this it's has happened strange. two out of the last crazy. 3 games it's just, it, it, strange. it makes no sense and i, I want to make my point on the kcp relationship with uh, anthony edwards they aren't officially related but they both went to georgia uh it, it, there, there's kind of an ironic story because the game started late last night so in most editions that uh, we got uh, of the Denver Post in this neighborhood, uh, they had kind of a pregame right. story, and the headline is KCP relishes matchup. Ooh, Subheadline, headline Nuggets guard has little brother relationship with Timberwolves uh, Edwards. And, of course, they both went to Georgia, and uh, here's Caldwell Pope telling the Post, I knew the season that he had at Georgia and then even the SEC tournament that he had, I knew then he was going to be uh, the number one pick, and uh, they talk often on the phone. Great. Hitting subjects uh, like family, shared roots, and Georgia. That's that's all great. Physically, he cannot match up with Edwards unless Edwards is yeah. being totally ignored or way off his game. Or he's just not right. And last night, he just took the game over for a period of over 15 minutes. He said this, from his perspective, I think he felt embarrassed that they were down after losing by 29, by 21 points right right before halftime. 4.45 left in the half, and he just said, no, I'm going to take it over. So they cut the 21-point lead to 15 by halftime, which I thought was mildly concerning from a Nugget point of view, that they made up six points in less than five minutes when the Nuggets have been stopping them cold the entire half. And he was the whole offense. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But then he just went to another level. He was already playing well. He went to a superstar level for those 15 minutes as they outscored the Nuggets 51-27. to And, you know, if somehow they had managed to win that game last night, that might have even awakened guys who have been ghosts or even liabilities in this series. Gobert, Towns, Prince, Anderson. Uh, Connolly's a class act, but he's getting up there in years. And anytime he was anywhere near Jamal Murray, you could count on at least two points and oftentimes three.
1: First time in Michael Malone's playoff career. They take a 2-0 lead in a series. So uh, fortunate for the matchup. Do they know what
2: to do with it, even in the bubble? They were down 3-1, 3-1, and 3-1 in the three series they played to the bubble. 2-0 leads, not something even in 19 the Nuggets were accustomed to. They'd lose at home to San Antonio. They'd lose at home to Portland as well. And they eventually lost game seven of that series at home to the Portland Dry Blazers. Home court has not been a great advantage for the Denver Nuggets, the NBA players.
1: Well, we'll find out what happens in game three in a couple of days, but the Colorado Avalanche have a, not a must win, and awfully close mm-hmm. to it tonight against Very the Seattle Kraken. We'll take a look at it next on Miley Sports.
0: Sandy Clough and Shondro Tar presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy.
1: The Colorado Avalanche have a, it's, if it's not must win, it's close. I know it's only game two of a series. I know it's only the, the second game of the first round between the number two and seven seeds. But you can't drop your first two at home. And they played. You can drop one. An underwhelming game in which they looked sort of discombobulated. They, they did not look in sync in their loss uh, against the the Kraken in game one. I think they'll tighten things up. I think they just needed a a couple reps that they weren't able to get and and thought they might have overlooked the Kraken a little bit in game one. But now they know the Kraken in the three games that they played in the regular season. and, And now in this one, by the way, the Kraken have not lost in regulation to the Colorado Avalanche at all let alone in Denver from their perspective, three, right? zero and one. And this
2: is the weird thing about hockey that the avalanche now in four games are one, two, and one against Seattle. But Seattle is not the reverse of that. Seattle is three, zero and one because the one game they lost, the avalanche came in overtime. It's an overtime loss. So it's right. not a regulation loss. And that, that, there's something to be said for the fact that uh, the avalanche should have I think, in the first game, taking Seattle perhaps a little more seriously. I think so. uh, It felt like uh, it. And, uh, you know, last time the Az are down 0-1 in a playoff series was in the bubble in Edmonton, August 22nd, 2020. Wow. When they lost the first game to the Dallas Stars, a series that eventually went seven. All games, of course, played in Edmonton with no fans, and Dallas won the series after the Avalanche blew a late one goal lead in regulation game seven almost came back from a 3-1 deficit to win that series um the last game one they lost in denver we talked about it yesterday 20 years ago against the minnesota wild in what was the minnesota wilds first playoff game ever it was a 4-2 game on april 10th 2003 the avalanche as we explained yesterday, would go on to win the next three games before they lost the last three games of that series and the last three games of Patrick Waugh's career. Game seven here in overtime. They had also lost another overtime game after leading in that series three games to one. So that, that was a rough series for the Avalanche. The scores of that series, though, I went back and looked at them yesterday. I'm not sure that Seattle is the very kind of team that Minnesota was back in 2003. They had a great star. The Wild did at the time in Marion Gabrick, who had 65 Mm -hmm. points that year. Uh, They had some minor contributions from guys who played above their statistical Yeah, at least their usual levels. At least during uh, the regular season that year. But Minnesota was a pretty good team. Probably not quite as good as Seattle, but they were a pesky team. They weren't beating you Mm -hmm. up. They were just pesky, and they wouldn't go away. And
1: I don't think this Kraken team has a has a I don't think have they have that kind of player. I I
2: don't know that they do. Maybe for this year they do. uh, I mean, you got a forty goal scorer. Yeah, I think Gabrick scored forty goals in two thousand three. But but I'm my point being that you know that was an avalanche team, two years removed from winning the Stanley mm-hmm. cup and no, they weren't the same team and Bork was gone and uh, you know, but, but Forsberg was playing healthy one of the few times after uh, they won the Stanley cup, uh, even at that point he was yeah. missing time. Uh, it, one of the few periods he was healthy was the second half of 03 uh, second half of the Oh two Oh three season. And, In the playoffs, he and Joe Sackick, especially on the power play, along with Milan Hadouk and Alex Tange, had fine series. The problem was nobody else really chipped in. And that could be a problem in this series if you've only got three or four guys putting up uh, goals and assists. And against a pesky team that has some depth, like that Minnesota team had some depth 20 years ago, it could be a problem for the Avalanche, Uh, although I – still like them to take this series in uh, no more than six games. I don't think it'll go seven. And if they stick to their business and start forechecking with a little more vigor and eliminate uh, obvious mistakes made by the likes of Devon Taves and Valerie Nashushkin in, in, in glaring mistakes, I mean, glaring. It, it, if a junior player made those mistakes, you'd be screaming at junior coach, would just be screaming, uh, maybe a little less rusty. Uh, even Jared Bednar said Manson was not on his game. No, he just hadn't played. And that's enough. not a shock. And, uh, you know, uh, part of Nathan McKinnon's point in saying he saw nothing special, uh, the other night from Philip Grubauer was the, the avalanche spent the night one and done, uh, not screening him. There was no traffic in front of him that I could detect during the course of the game and uh, you know you start putting people in front of the net uh Nashushkin's usually a guy who does that uh, i thought Nashushkin and Lekkinen were not just ineffective but they were bad the other night they were both liabilities they weren't very good i thought confer because it was his line got more blame than he should have i thought confer played well i thought mckinnon played fine ranton played fine and actually rodriguez played okay the first line was good uh but they didn't have any help no, at all nothing from anybody else beyond the first line, uh, uh, except Confer maybe uh, on the bottom three lines.
1: In that with that line of Lekin and Confer and Nachushkin, uh, they did have a, an expected goals percentage that was positive, but that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story because they were one. They were outshot five on five, seven to four, almost.
2: That's almost two to one. We talked about that up. yesterday. That's not and that's not okay. And you're going against on the a ice team for two that's of the four goals. Five or two five, of the three they're, goals. They're good five on five because they can roll four lines. They have depth. The, the That's why Seattle's
1: good five on five. It's important to get more shots for that line in particular because you talk about all three of those players in Najushkin and Lekinen and, and Coffer. Certainly the best two way line that the Avs possess. When you're talking about the ability to, to, to forecheck and add a little bit of physicality, I think it's the best defensive forward line that they that they possess when you're talking about also having some offensive ability. But one of the challenges is if you look at, let's say a and it's not I get it, it's not entirely totally fair to compare everyone to Miko Randon or Nathan McKinnon. But when you look at a situation in a game where Rantanen perhaps has a partial break or has leverage against his defender, you feel there's a pretty good chance he's going to finish that chance. I would say that we we know career-wise Lekanen, who is an opportunistic goal scorer, but he's not really a finisher. As as much as Nachushkin has but offensive it, ability, I, I he isn't either. I don't, and don't is I, I don't expect I mean, him to be the, a finisher. But my point is, if they're if because of who they are,
2: he wasn't hard on the puck. They he can't check well. Get and he's out falling shot. down all night.
1: They can't get he's out falling shot.
2: Falling down all night
1: to he's get offensive down. contributions from that line. They simply can't get out shot like that because right. though they aren't the guys that are going to just go ahead and finish their goal opportunities. They're more of the you know find it find an angle that happens to be available, get something off a rebound, take something off the screen, a screen, deflection. That's how those guys tend to score. You so you're going to have to find more shots. And listen, shoes more a,
2: a wonderful player. He simply did not skate the other night. He was as immobile as Carl Anthony Towns has been in this playoff series with the Timberwolves against the Nuggets. He didn't skate. And Lackin's falling down all night. Falling down all night. Every time I look up, he's falling down. And, you know, so... When you're falling down, you're not exactly putting pressure on the puck. Uh, no, these guys weren't even close to playing to their strengths the other night. Now I, I assume both will be better, that and for that reason they'll have at least two lines going tonight. But at the bottom six, whether they get Helm back or or Cagliano back, I, I'm I'm tired of reading about. Uh, well, you know, look at Cagliano and Helm back, and they'll be fine. No, I don't know. Nobody knows that. Well, I'd so, be surprised if either one of them
1: played tonight. I, well, I'd be surprised if either one of them played. On top of that, if you're going to look at the guys and, and say, that like, Cagliano and Helmer, are going to be your saviors? Exactly. Those those are veteran exactly. depth those players. Those are utility players. Yeah, that's not the answer. The abs- I
2: mean, Cagliano's nice on the penalty kill, but the penalty kill wasn't their problem. No. The other night, it was not their problem. No, their, problem their problem was five sloppy on play. five, sloppy play in their own end. And, you know, Bednar went back, looked at the film, and I'm reading today that he reached the same conclusions that that we did. Yeah. They couldn't get, get out, out, of out of their own, own end cleanly. They could not. And that was the point that Logan O'Connor made. He said, that's why we couldn't forecheck. We weren't getting out of our own end. And when we were, we weren't able to come into the zone in an organized way or even chip the puck in back of them so we could chase them on the forecheck. And so if you're not forechecking, the reason for that has to do with playing your own end more than it does your play in the attacking
1: zone. Oftentimes, and Matt Nieto said after that game, we've just got to get a lot quicker. You can expect to see a lot better uh, tonight. So we'll see how that uh, occurs, but we do look at this game. We figure out, all right, what do the Avs need to do that they did not end game one to get the win tonight and even the series at one-to-one? We'll take a look at that. We'll break it all down for you next on Miley Sports. <laughs>